Hey, what's up? It's Chad of the Two Man Power Trip, and you are listening here to a very special download in your iTunes library as we bring to you episode number 18 of the Triple Threat Podcast featuring the franchise Shane Douglas in somewhat of an iTunes preview. You get to finally check out what we've been doing over on the IRW Network with our co-host, the franchise Shane Douglas, for what would be the 18th episode, even though when you listen to this, Shane keeps referring to it as episode number 17. So don't think you're crazy. We just did not correct him until afterwards because we kept on getting a good laugh out of it. But you are going to be listening to a conspiracy theory-filled episode number 18 of the Triple Threat Podcast. It's a nice, long episode. It's got a lot of cool stuff in it, whether it's current event-related or wrestling-related. There's a lot and really something for everybody on this episode. So please stay tuned for the Triple Threat Podcast number 18. For everybody that's downloaded the two-man power trip, we thank you so much. And this is a little bit of a special presentation for you so you can catch a glimpse of what we are doing on the Triple Threat Podcast with the franchise Shane Douglas. So strap in, enjoy, and if you like what you heard and you want to get a question answered by Shane Douglas, the email address for the Triple Threat Podcast is thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. Again, it's thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy what you have to hear, and let's get listening to episode number 18 of the Triple Threat Podcast. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great, grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise. And he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas. And you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised exclusively on the IRW Network. He's talking about. 
Jade. I know you're always running around like a chicken with your head cut off. There's always some craziness going on in the world always. of the franchise, which I love because it always adds to some fun conversation. It always <laughs> adds to what we're going to talk about on this show. And like we've been doing for many, many weeks, including 17 other episodes that we've recorded, there's always craziness going on outside of Pittsburgh and the rest of the world. And in this episode, we are going to focus on some conspiracy theories. So I know that's something that you and my co-host on the two-man power trip there, Mr. Paz, love getting involved with. So are you guys ready to tackle some conspiracy theories in today's episode? It was Area 51 and the aliens, damn it. They did it all. (laughs) So... When you think about a conspiracy theory, you think about not just Area 51 or Kennedy or 9-11 or even now Vegas, also professional wrestling. So there's a little bit of wrestling to tackle here later on in the show. But before we get into everything involving the conspiracy theories, we've got to talk on a little news of the week. And uh, you find yourself in some interesting scenarios there, uh, Mr. Douglas, because (laughs) this past weekend you were at what was a huge show at uh, the Cobo Hall in Detroit, built up forever. I mean, it's, it, it had so many names. We talked about it at the end of last week's show. The amazing talent is going to be in Cobo at this show, uh, including Jim Cornette, including yourself, including Al Snow, including Santino Morella, and a couple other great names. You brought Dominic DiNucci with you. But a lot of news coming out of that, uh, that little convention and that show. But before we get into the news, how was that show and how was that event and your road trip with Dominic DiNucci? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I just want to thank the fans because they gave Dominic. Now, Dominic hasn't been to an event or on the road for any kind of major event other than a small local thing here or there uh, in, in several years. And, you know, his wife had been getting ill. And slowly uh, getting sicker over you know over a period of some time, and Dominic was pretty much the, the sole caretaker. Um, so when Janine unfortunately passed away uh, two and a half weeks ago, I, you know you can imagine the impact on Dominic. Forty-eight years married, and uh, you know all the rest of it. You know, we for me the worry was I so often read the story of. You know, somebody married that long, one gets sick and dies, and a week or two later, something happens. And uh, what I was emboldened by this weekend was, aside from Dominic's physical stature, which if you've seen the pictures online, you know, for an 85-year-old guy, he looks pretty damn good. Uh, He's still in great shape. He's still sharp as a tack. I spent, you know, two and a half days with him, 24 hours a day. Um, But the reception that he got from the fans and the wrestlers, you know, the, uh, the boys in the back, it was just, uh, it was humbling to see, and I felt so good for him because it really, it was the first time since Janine's passing that I'd seen the Dominic that I'd known since eighth grade. Uh, he had a tremendous time. He really enjoyed himself. He really enjoyed being around everybody in the fans. And uh, so thank the, I want to thank the fans for, you know, uh, giving him that kind of reception because it meant an awful lot to Dominic and as such meant a lot to me, but I was. It was a big event. You know, Cobo Hall's got so much history behind it. I mean, you know, it's aside from where the Red Wings used to play uh, and and what about the 350 uh, Stanley Cups that they have? Uh, Plus, for our business, so many major professional wrestling shows and angles over the years have taken place there from, you know, Dick the Bruiser and the Sheik and kangaroos and all those uh detroit-based guys back in the day when there were territories 
to later uh, the NWA, WCW, and WWF, of course. Uh, you know, just a huge building with a ton of wrestling history in it. It was just a, it was a lot of fun, a very, very cool uh, trip back in time, if you will, to the historic Cobo Hall. Yeah, and I got a chance to see a couple of the pictures uh, that were surfacing uh, throughout the weekend, because like I said, there's big news coming out of it, so we'll get to that in a minute, but to see Dominic, I mean, he looks fantastic. I mean, there's no two ways around it. He's got life in his face. You could see his expression from a mile away, just the smile yeah. lighting up the room. Very cool to see, and you definitely think that the fans being receptive to him really raised his spirits in what's been a really tough you know, month or so for him over the last uh, couple weeks? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I... I... We had stopped at my attorney's house, uh, my roommate from college uh, in Ohio for the night. Had a really nice, relaxing night. Uh, had a good dinner. Woke up the next morning uh, about 90 minutes from Detroit and got there. But I could see it in Dominic's face, you know, for the, you know, since Janine's passing. You can understand. I mean, it, it, the best way I could describe it is uh, it was like he had a hole in him. Uh, he, you know, just sullen, uh, you know, all understandable. But, on Saturday at the Cobo Hall event, I saw the Dominic Panucci that I've known since eighth grade uh, interacting with the fans. You know, it was so cool to see, you know, fans coming and saying, man, I, I just want to say thank you. I've watched you since I was a kid, and, you know, you were one of my favorites. And, you know, stuff like that you heard ad nauseum. And, you know, Dominic, of course, uh, uh, is so humble. He doesn't, you know, had, having not been around the business, you know, he just it's like a day at the office to him because he's done it so long. But at the end of the night, we went back to the hotel, and he said, you know, uh, and Dominic's a man a few words on this kind of stuff. Uh, he said, you know, that was a pretty good a day, you know, and uh, I could see it with him. He just – plus, he hasn't he hasn't been sleeping well, and uh, we went back to the hotel. Maybe tomorrow on Twitter I'll post a picture. I went out to get us something to eat after the show, and I came back, and Dominic was zonked out, uh, slept through the night till 9 o'clock the next morning, so – you know, mm-hmm. he obviously had uh, settled in and enjoyed himself. And, you know, again, I can't thank the fans enough and the wrestlers and boys enough because – and XICW enough because, you know, to bring him in and, and, and allow, you know, him to have that interaction, I think, meant the world to him. And as such, it meant the world to me. Now, that's great. I wanted to read this to you. I, I told you about this before we got going. So Cody Diener, who was at this show and a part of a pretty uh, pretty cool match – on the actual XICW uh, wrestling card that you were a part of and main eventing. Um, i got to read you what he wrote on uh, Facebook. I abbreviated it a little bit just because it was a a nice post, but it had a picture of you, uh, Dominic, and Cody. And he said, I looked up from my merch table and saw Shane Douglas walking with Dominic DiNucci across Cobo Hall toward me. Shane gave me a hug and said, I wanted to introduce you to someone, my trainer. I told him I know exactly who that is. That's Dominic DiNucci. So this man who trained and I, excuse me, this was the man who trained the man I idolized as a teenager and as a wrestling fan, guys like Shane Douglas and Mick Foley. He continued, I was brought up properly in the business to respect those who have gone before me. Honestly, sometimes that's kind, that can be difficult. You meet a veteran who is less than pleasant or sometimes straight disrespectful to those around him. Shane Douglas and Dominic DiNucci make it extremely easy to follow the code of respecting those who have paved the way. They are two of the good guys in the business, and it was very humbling to have been shown mutual respect from two legends. 
Now that I think of it, the first legend I met who blew me away with their kindness was Mick Foley. I take it as no coincidence that those two class acts like Mick Foley and Shane Douglas were both brought up in the business by Dominic DiNucci. Well done, sir. This business needs more like you. That was by Cody Diener. What a great statement with the picture you guys took. Yeah, that's, I've seen the picture. I didn't, I didn't see the, uh, uh, his post. And we did talk about it, but we, of course, just for, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, and fairness and balance, uh, you, you didn't tell me what we said. This is the first I've heard it. Uh, you know, Cody's a great kid, uh, fantastic young wrestler. Um, and I wanted to take Dominic around and introduce him to everybody. And, and, uh, you know, it's, Dominic, I, I, the one part I have to laugh at is, is like when he says it's no coincidence, uh, about Mick and I, uh, because that's the way Dominic taught us or else, you know, it was, uh, not that Dominic was stiff to us or mean to us, but he expected a certain code from us as young guys in the business, not just representing him, but representing the business that he remembered. So, um, he used to tell us, I remember the early, very early in training, probably the first day, him saying, keep your fucking mouth shut and your eyes and ears open. And, uh, you know, that, and that's how it was. That's how that generation was for the most part in thought. But uh, that's, uh, it's very cool for Cody to say. And, uh, you know, Dominic, you know, he, he obviously you can see in the picture uh, how good he looks. And like I said, he's sharp as a tack. I mean, he was telling me stories and all weekend long and saying it was in 1961, it was April 13th. And I got on a plane at, you know, this time and I was <laughs> At first, I was BSing me, you know, but he, all weekend long, he kept giving these stories and specific dates. And then later, he'd reference back and say the same thing. He's incredibly sharp, much sharper than me at 85 years old. I may never remember those specific details. Uh, but Dominic is a guy that, you know, obviously, you can see with Mick and I. It's no, I don't think it's coincidence that, you know, Mick and I both went out and, and uh, you know, became – you know, stars in the business because we were trained properly and trained by a damn good wrestler. Dominic still has an awful lot to offer in that sense. You know, that he's, uh, if, if he were slowing down, if he were showing signs of aging, I'd be a bit reticent to put him out there like that. And uh, instead, I, I came back from the weekend just incredibly humbled that, he got, you know, had the opportunity to, to meet everybody, both the fans and the boys, and uh, and and met a lot of great kids like Cody. You know, it's, uh, you know, that, that you see somebody that, as he said, was trained properly and, and, and brought in right. Uh, you know, our business has always, not just, you know, in the last generation or two, but the wrestling industry had always been predicated and built on that premise. Respect those that came before you, learn from them, and do right by them. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that Cody Diener does do that and will do that. And, uh, you know, it's a very cool thing for Cody to say. It's, it's awesome, man. Two thumbs up in the franchise. Yeah, very cool. I had to uh, screenshot that and, uh, and save that for tonight because uh, I thought that was really Poignant and very well written by Cody uh, as well, who played, let's not forget, it's very well written for a guy who played uh, Trailer Park uh, Backwoods uh, Redneck from Canada there. So uh, good stuff out of Cody. Definitely uh, very, very well written. But we got to kind of transition off of that. See, the respect part that you're talking about versus the news that came out of that event. That was between 
Jim Cornette and a former student of his at Ohio Valley Wrestling, Anthony Corelli, a.k.a. Santino Morella. We've had Santino on the show. We've interviewed Cornette a bunch of times. We've, we've said that. But we've talked to Santino as well. He runs Battle Arts Academy up in Toronto. Uh, yep. He had a career-ending neck injury that uh, unfortunately cut a 10-year run in the WWE short. Uh, so obviously, you know, not, uh, not the best situation for him. But a long-standing feud between these two uh, finally came to a confrontation at an event. And Shane, I'm sure you know with guys that, you know, you, you've traded – some words within the past that when you run into these events, you know there's a chance you can run into somebody that you've said stuff about in the past. Yep. And with Cornette and Santino, this is many, many, many years of uh, Cornette slinging some mud. Uh, I would say Santino took the high road at some point, but definitely had some pot shots thrown back as well. But finally, yep. coming to a head at this XICW Kobo convention, um, were you able to be around for this confrontation that has been released online and filmed by many people, including uh, some of the guys that were there? Some of the wrestlers even took out their phones and were filming this. And were you able to see this? And what was the fallout at the event of this confrontation? Well, I, I've got to plead ignorance. You know, more, you know, for for being the verbose guy that I am, uh, Dominic and I, Dominic had wanted to go back to the hotel to get changed. Uh, you know his generation didn't go to the building in just sweatpants or whatever. So we took him over. I had to go back to the Detroit airport, took Dominic back so we, he could change and shave. And this all transpired as after we had left. Uh, when I got back, as we got off the elevator coming from the parking area, the fans were talking about, hey, franchise here about what happened with Cornette and Santino. Then the building security uh, started saying the same thing to me. And by the time Dominic and I had made it into the actual uh, hall, uh, everybody, fans, wrestlers, security, anybody that was around was talking about this. And, you know, I'd heard multiple versions during the course of the day, but what seemed to be the the common thread amongst all the different stories and uh, perspectives was that uh, in the hallway outside of the, the arena, uh, Santino had approached Jim Cornette uh, And if I'm getting something wrong uh, I apologize I'm just reiterating what I had heard uh, Through multiple different versions Of the story that These were the commonalities uh, Was that Santino had approached uh, Jim Cornette And extended his hand and said Hey let's let bygones be bygones Or something to that effect And Corny as we know he can do Went off And uh you know, especially in light of this being not to just gratuitously go back to this horrific massacre in Las Vegas, but you can imagine how public buildings like a Cobo Hall would be on extreme high alert for anything outside of the norm. And, you know, of course, when this confrontation happened, security reacted quickly. I heard varying stories. At one point, I heard uh, that Detroit's finest was called in and escorted Jim out. I don't know if that's true or not. I heard that in a few versions of the story. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me because earlier in the day, uh, Jim Cornette's table was, uh, there was a table between mine and his. We were probably 20 feet away from each other, maybe 30 feet. And, uh, you know, Corny had posted something last week about on Twitter saying, you know, all you conservatives 
stay the hell off my Twitter feed or something like that. Well, you know, as a conservative, I walked in completely innocently and jokingly uh, up behind Jim Cornette and put him in a sort of a chin lock and pushed his head forward with my chest and said, you know, you got to be careful when you're talking about conservatives. And he jumped up and we laughed and, you know, choked for a second. And then he started ranting about Donald Trump. And when I'm, I say ranting, ranting almost <laughs> almost in an insane fashion to the point where Dominic actually said, hey, kid, take it easy, you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, Jim was, was ramped up from the beginning. I don't think the, the, the joke for me was what set him off, but it seemed to me that Jim was uh, wound tight prior to that. And, uh, you know, from the politics thing, he, he, that went on for a while inside the building. And then uh, after we left, of course, this thing was Santino. Um, that, I, the only thing I, I, other additional to add to that, what I had said previously, is that the promoter had said to me, because uh, I, I, some of the building security had said to me that they were working on trying to get uh, Cornette back in the building. And when I went and asked the promoter, you know, uh, are they going to get him back in the building? He said, no, there's, there's no chance of that. And they had to take Santino out too, because they were afraid that, you know, Cornette would come back and say, you discriminated against me. Why not him? Whatever. I don't know who instigated. I wasn't there. The, the things that I heard repeatedly, from fans and from some of the boys that had seen it was what I had said, that Santino had extended his hand and Cornette said he'd slap him in the face again. I said, I'm completely oblivious to what happened in Ohio Valley, uh, but apparently there was some kind of confrontation in Ohio Valley wrestling a year and a half or two and a half years ago, whatever it was. And this was Oh, much step. longer than that. No, no. We're talking 12, 13 years. This is much longer really? than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, but – it's way, way deep-rooted. There was So I'll just give you the overall gist of it. Yeah. They had um, – so Santino was a student in Ohio Valley Wrestling. He uh, – you know, they were establishing his uh, character he was working on at the time. The debut of the Boogeyman. Okay, you know the Boogeyman, correct? Yeah. Okay, so the Boogeyman was debuting on TV, and they put Santino in the crowd – and um, I guess, you know, the debut was supposed to be somewhat of a spectacularly haunting, um, you know, display, and Santino was seen laughing um, at ringside. So when Cornette got him in the back, he laughed the shit out of him. And, um, you know, it basically led to Cornette's dismissal from WWE, and uh, it's gone on ever since. Cornette has not hid his feelings from Santino, calling him, you know, a joke character and you know, he's uh, slapped the shit out of him again if he ever sees him. So basically, this was brewing, but Santino, from what I had heard and what people who were there told me, was that, you know, he 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 said, you know, extend my hand, you know, and Cornette said, I'll slap the shit out of you again. And the video that surfaced, Cornette tries to walk away, and Santino continues to move towards him. So obviously, Shane, that's a little bit of an aggressive move. So would you feel... Santino was in the wrong to not himself. Just if you didn't get the handshake, just walk away. You can go bitch about it, but just walk away. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a time, you know, there's a time to confront, and there's a time to to not. And you know, like I said, it was pretty clear to me after the like my joking comments with Jim about politics 
uh, how he set off. So, I mean, it was pretty easy for me to read that. Dominic clearly read it. Uh, I would think that anybody would be able to see that. But, again, I didn't see the video. Uh, uh, to me, we all know Jim Cornette. And when Jim's to that level and he's got an audience watching, uh, he's not going to calm down and say, okay, buddy, let's be friends. Uh, so if Santino moved toward him at that point, either he was being aggressive or, you know, not aware of Jim's, uh, Jim's, uh, past and, and his personality. Uh, to me, I, my, my takeaway though, beyond who was at fault, who wasn't at fault is I, and this goes back to what we had said earlier about Dominic training us properly. We're there booked on a show that the promoter had put up a lot of money of his own personal money to put this show on. A lot of fans had come there to see people like Jim Cornette and Santino. Uh, you know, so to allow something like this to get so out of hand uh, that two of the people that the fans are coming to see are thrown out, uh, to me, is, is beyond the pale of professionalism. Because if you... Uh, you know, it's one thing if you flew yourself in and you're appearing there on your own dime or whatever, and I don't know each either one's uh, situation as to what deal they had worked out with the promoter. But to me, you're there for an event. I've walked into an awful lot of buildings with people I didn't necessarily care for over my career, but it wasn't my place to get myself thrown out or get the person who I didn't care for thrown out. We're there to provide something to the fans and on a, on a closer level, uh, to, to be professional with the promoter that's paid to bring us in. So, whichever was at fault, both of them, whichever, it was Cornette, Santino, but ultimately both of them bear some responsibility as sometimes the big boys in the room say it's time to just stay away from each other and the fans don't get screwed, the promoter doesn't get screwed. And God forbid that somebody ends up in jail for the night because I wouldn't think that being in jail in Detroit would be a fairly fun thing to, to, to go through. So uh, that's my little soapbox on, on the side of that. Again, I didn't witness any of it. I, Dominic and I were outside the building. These were the things that I heard when I'd gotten back. So I had no idea that it had even been that long from Ohio Valley. I, I thought it was a few years ago. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's more than that. And before I hand it over to John here, and you guys are gonna uh, do your do your thing here, because I gotta take a seat, a seat back and listen to you uh, you two go on about the conspiracies. You talk about fun. You talk about Dominic Danucci. There's like some crazy like buddy comedy there. I gotta tell you, with you two driving from Pittsburgh to Detroit and rooming for the weekend and all this craziness going on. There is some kind of comedy, uh, whether it's a sitcom or a buddy movie or something between <laughs> you and Dominic. All I can picture is like the National Lampoon's uh, vacation theme in yeah. my head, <laughs> thinking about you two traveling the roads. Well, yeah, I, I said to Dominic, I'm, I'm 53 years old. He came to this country in 1961. Uh, he went to, from Italy to Montreal in, I think, 1958 or 59, and then he year or two later in 1961 to the United States. So he's been here for at least 54, 55 years. And I can understand Dominic because I've been around him for 40 years, but he speaks, they say he speaks five languages and he can, he can speak Spanish and 
Italian and Japanese, you know, some Japanese and uh, uh, I forget the other languages, but they say he speaks five languages. And uh, I said, well, you know, if you're counting English, you might want to make that four because, you know, his English is just a little bit suspect. But uh, I said, all, all joking and all, all just, uh, I had a fantastic time. We, I went to his house and picked him up and he got in the car. We're driving down his driveway. I looked at him and I said, it's like a time warp. I said, you know, it's been over 30 years since you and I have been on the road together. And completely, thoroughly enjoyable time. But I'm sure you're right. There was probably, if there was a hidden camera in the car, there was probably a couple points where the wrestling fans would think of my, you know, that was <laughs> exactly what they would expect from having Shane Douglas, the franchise, and Dominic Venucci in a car all together for 36 hours or whatever it was. <laughs> Now, if I could switch some gears here and go into what I've been dying to talk to you about, because I know you, much like me, we don't kind of believe everything that we read or see or hear or or even believe what the government tries to feed us. Ah. We love the conspiracy theories. We love to kind of think outside the box. And I feel like that's always the way the franchise is. He's never quite in that box. He's always outside the box. So the first thing i got to ask you is, as far as some conspiracy theories is, have you seen the, you know, the, with the Las Vegas shooting that, that the Stephen Paddock, have you seen some conspiracy theories around, you know, around that and involving that? Have you heard any conspiracy theories as, as far as Las Vegas? I, I'd heard, I, I read a few things today when I knew we were going to be talking about conspiracy theories. I hadn't delved into it at all, uh, but the night of the shooting, there was something that jumped out at me. And, look, I'm no ballistic expert, uh, but I've never seen a high-powered gun that didn't give off a substantial muzzle flash. And uh, if you recall, all those videos that the people in the park were shooting uh, multiple times, when you hear the gun being fired, you can clearly see Mandalay Bay in the background. And from, from you know, bottom to top, you can see the entire building uh, from the ground level all the way to the roof. At no time when those machine gun bursts are going off, do I see any muzzle flash coming from anywhere from anywhere in the building, let alone you know the 32nd floor towards the top of the building. And that to me was the first thing. Even that day when I was watching the videos, struck me, and I thought you know this guy must have had some kind of a you know uh, suppressor or something on his on his gun because uh, you could know, see no muzzle flash or, you know, uh, you know, blinking or lights or anything coming from that area, even though you can hear the gunshots going off strongly, you know, for extended periods, you know, you know, for 10, 15, 20 seconds at a time, uh, and, and you see no muzzle flash. I did read about the taxi driver uh, who claimed that he heard shots going off like a floor above him from the ground level and from behind him, uh, that that could be echo. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm no ballistics expert, but the, the thing I keep coming back to, John, I'm curious to hear your point of view, is uh, it just it still doesn't make sense to me. Even with all the the stuff we've heard that you know he was taking Valium and whatever else. Uh, a 64-year-old guy that can go out and gamble a million dollars, 
doesn't just decide to go out and just open fire on a on a you know twenty two thousand people in an open park arena. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And uh, nothing I've heard to date, and I've heard you know I follow this every day, so I've I've heard nothing to this point that makes this make sense. Uh, where you say, oh, okay, well now maybe this or that. Uh, something strange here just isn't adding up to this uh, whole thing. And then, like I said, that my initial thought the night, well, it was Monday by the time I woke up that morning and saw, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the online accounts. Uh, but anything, any of the videos that I've watched that day and since, it immediately jumped out to me. I don't see any muzzle flash coming from anywhere in Mandalay Bay. And, uh, you know, again, I maybe had a suppressor. I haven't read much about what kind of, other than the number, I haven't heard specifically what kind of weapons he had, what kind of caliber bullets he was using. Uh, did he have suppressors or whatever? Uh, clearly he didn't have silencers because you can hear it on the videos. Um, if he didn't have a silencer, I doubt he had a suppressor on the, uh, you know, to suppress the muzzle flash. It just seems highly strange to me that this guy would have unleashed, you know, thousands of rounds of ammunition and you don't see one flash coming from anywhere in Mandalay Bay. Yeah, and the thing that, I don't know, that just kind of didn't sit right with me was like the point you made. He's 64 years old, and all of a sudden then he just realizes like, oh, I'm going to get all these guns and kill all these people. And then everyone's saying, oh, but, uh, you know, there was evidence. He bought all these guns. It's like, uh, I don't know. It's like something's not jiving with me as far as, like the motive, he had no motive to do it. So yeah. immediately, I'm thinking these people that want uh, gun control, they would go this far and kind of right. Am I am I crazy for thinking that they would go this far? No. to try to get gun control. No, history repeats itself, and those who don't learn it are, are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Right. So we look back to World War II in Pearl Harbor. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming. There's no smoking gun. But the evidence is overwhelming that Roosevelt and his administration were aware uh, that the Japanese were going to be bombing. Uh, we had breached their uh, uh, their code, uh, you know, their uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their uh, uh, you know, when they kayfabe their transmissions, we had broken their code. But we were aware uh, that there was an attack coming. Uh, I've seen confirmation that the night before Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese ambassador and his uh, underlings went to meet with uh, Roosevelt and said, you know, uh, talked about continuing negotiations and that sort of thing, that Roosevelt that night was aware that they were lying to him. Uh, From friends of mine, again, I never served in the military, but my dad did extensively. And from friends of mine who told me it's unheard of to see an entire fleet uh, in uh, in the harbor at one time to safeguard against such an attack. So, you know, you go back, there's an awful lot of information. Again, no smoking gun specific, and you're never going to, because you're never going to see confirmation that they did. But post-World War One, America had no taste for going back to war. Uh, Americans were staunchly against it. But an attack on Pearl Harbor or anywhere would change that. And that's exactly what we saw Uh, by 
December 8th, people around the country were signing up uh, to go fight. And, uh, you know, America was effectively in World War II. Uh, you know, you go throughout American history, 9-11, uh, same thing, the same type of uh, questions about whether we knew something was coming. Uh, you know, the evidence is certainly, there's certainly enough evidence there for you at least a question, you know, that it's not specifically what we were told. And, uh, you know, my, my take on it, John, is always, if it's a question of take the government at face value or not, I cannot take the government at face value because I'm and so many times, so often, that they've lied to us. The Kennedy assassination. Uh, if any believe Lee Harvey Oswald shot that bullet that did all those crazy angles and everything else, uh, to me, you know, it's it, the, the smoking gun on that to me is that. Here we are 53 years later. I know that because I was born the day before Kennedy was shot. Uh, so I know instinctively in my head how long. Uh, the, the documents that relate to the Kennedy assassination, some have been released, but there's still an awful lot that have been kayfabe. They keep being reclassified and pushed forward and reclassified and pushed forward. We are now 53 years post. Uh, almost 54 years post the Kennedy assassination, and those documents have still not been released. And why? I mean, if most everybody's dead and gone, if, if everybody's so certain that Oswald did this, why are those documents not released? Why not release them all? And if, if it's what they say it is, if it's what the government is telling us it was, Oswald, then all those documents ought to confirm that and shut us all up, those of us that don't believe. I just recently saw a documentary about Robert Kennedy being shot five years later in 1968. Uh, if you recall, that night he had won the California primary, and uh, the Chicago convention, uh, which led to violence that year, uh, he, you know, of course his famous last words were, okay, uh, you know, now it's on to Chicago and let's win few minutes later, a few seconds later, he shot in the pantry of the Ambassador Hotel. Well, there were all sorts of television cameras and hundreds of people in the reception hall uh, to watch this. And I'd always wondered, especially with technology today, has anybody ever gone through and looked specifically at who's in that audience? Uh, because with all the different TV cameras and stuff, I'm sure with the panning of the audience and things, uh, you'd be able to sit down and pick out specific faces and things. Uh, I'm sure everybody that was supposed to be there uh, or that was there had been documented by authorities. And I just saw a documentary that said there were five known CIA hitmen in the ambassador reception hall that night that Kennedy was there. My question immediately would be, what in the fuck are CIA hitmen doing in the ambassador hotel on the night of a presidential primary. Um, so, I mean, you know, these are all the things that you could sit there and most people, like, first of all, let's talk about conspiracy theories. Everybody says what a conspiracy theory the wisdom is. Oh, that's just all nutty talk. Nobody believes that stuff. Um, but when you start to look at the facts, like I always tell my boys, when you've got to the point where you've ruled out the possibilities, begin to the impossibilities and 
like my professor Al Austin used to say at Bethany, here come those damn pesky facts. Um, when you've got those damn pesky facts that you can't just like five known CIA hitmen in the audience that day. What the fuck are hitmen doing in Boy, just by coincidence, Robert Kennedy gets shot a few minutes later. And of course, we all know the story about the woman in the polka dotted dress and Sir Han, Sir Han, today under hypnosis, uh, cannot recall the shooting. Uh, Again, it sounds like crazy talk, but if you've seen the movie The Manchurian Candidate with uh, uh, Frank Sinatra or the new one with uh, Denzel Washington, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of evidence that the CIA was working on this kind of a program in the years leading up to 1968 uh, with MKUltra and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, getting back to bring that, but the government is now telling us within hours, within an hour or two, bodies are still laying in, in the concert uh, venue. And Hillary Clinton, good God, would she just go away, uh, is saying, well, you know, we need, this, we need gun control more than ever. I came across some really fascinating facts today online uh, about, you know, we keep on hearing about how America is the murder capital of the world and, you know, all these murders take place here because of handguns. Uh, but there are some really interesting facts and statistics that I found today when compared to other countries that don't have guns and you start to look at the murder rate, not the murder rate by guns, but the murder rate. Uh, you know, we're not the lowest, but we're far from being the highest, uh, including European nations, including uh, most other developed countries around the world. So the point for those of us that believe in the Second Amendment is that, look, if if Shane Douglas wants to kill uh, Chad or JP tonight, uh, and I don't have a gun, well, if I want to kill you that badly, I'll find I'll run you down with my truck, as we've seen with ISIS and all this other bullshit idiots around the world today. Uh, or I'll stab you, or I'll poison you, or I'll break your neck, or I'll do something. If, I, if I'm that dead set on killing one of you guys, I can certainly do that, and these statistics bear that out. So it just seems strange to me that, getting back to the conspiracy side of it, within an hour or two of this horrific massacre that boggles the, 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 the mind to, when you read about it and ponder it. Uh, and then you have people like Hillary Clinton coming out and say, see, we, we need gun control. And then, you know, even further, more disgustingly saying the Republican Party is complicit in this. Uh, you know, for those out there that don't understand the word complicit, that means that the Republicans were part of it, like accessories to this. And... That is so far beyond the pale. I just want to go on record right now saying, fuck Hillary Clinton. Jesus God. That's disgusting and, and, and it's least extrapolation. And in the in intonation that she meant it to be, Jesus God. I'm a Republican, so I'm complicit in this massacre going on in, in uh, Las Vegas. Well, what about her? She was the number two lady. She was the, she was the, the, the wife, the first lady, or I'm sorry, the first spouse if you want to go with the last moron that was in there, uh, the first uh, spouse, uh, what did she push for gun control when her husband was president? None. And 
you know, uh, so is she complicit? Uh, is Bill Clinton complicit? Or is this just possibly, if we just take it at face value, just some lone crazy gunman that decided to go off? Uh, we already know that he had uh, tannite and uh, uh, what's the uh, fertilizer, uh, ammonium nitrate in his car. So if he wanted to kill people and didn't have a gun, he was going to kill people that night, whether he had a gun or not. Uh, it boggles the mind when I hear people like Jim Cornette on Saturday saying, we need to rip the Constitution up and rewrite it. What? I mean, the, the most eloquent governing document that's ever been written in human history. We're going to rip it up because people like Jim Cornette and Hillary Clinton believe that it doesn't do enough to, to cover this stuff today. There's plenty of laws. Like, let's, let's rule out some of the fallacies. First of all, we need background checks. Background checks have been in place for over a quarter century. When I got my gun 24 years ago, I did a background check and waited three or five days to get my gun. Uh, automatic weapons need to be outlawed. They were in 1934 uh, off after the National Firearms Act of 1934. Uh, does that mean that there's none out there and that there's not some? Yeah, maybe. And, and I think any sentient adult uh, that's concerned about this has no problem at least investigating it. But when I hear people saying, we need to rip the Constitution up and let government, the very people we don't trust at all, rewrite it. Keep in mind, these are the same people that wrote the Patriot Act that allows them to listen to our phone calls like this one and read our emails. Uh, sorry if I'm just not very trustworthy or trusting of people like that uh, because I don't find them to be very trustworthy. And I would rather, <laughs> I'd rather sleep with Hillary Clinton then let them, which I don't want to do at all, then let them rewrite the Constitution to tell me what government, what governing uh, document is going to control my life. Fuck that. Crazy to think that, you know, some of these things, that these, these people would go that far, but I really do think they would, you know, just for gun control or just to say that we should rewrite the Constitution. I mean, these people would do anything to, you know, to, to get their political agenda, even pretend to kill one of the biggest terrorists of all time. And I got to mention this to you because I don't believe this for an absolute second as far as bin Laden and the story of his death. I don't know what you think of it, but it just doesn't seem believable, doesn't seem uh, plausible. And the whole fact that we never saw a picture of him, we never saw any evidence of them actually killing him. Um, the guy was on the FBI's most wanted list for uh, 10 plus years. We wouldn't take a picture of him. We'd just throw him in the ocean after we shoot him in the head. What are your thoughts yeah. on, on the, bin Laden, the Bin Laden death? Well, I, you know, again, I researched this today a little bit at about 15 minutes, and, and uh, you know, I, I know the overt stuff. Uh, what I was unaware of is that uh, the Mossad, the uh, uh, Israeli uh, CIA, for lack of better terms, um, and multiple other uh, uh, organizations around the world from other countries believed that Osama bin Laden had died previously from kidney disease, and yep. which would which would then explain why we didn't see anything of him or hear anything of him for so long, and that he was able to fly under the radar. It's pretty hard to find a guy that's dead. 
Um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, so if he was, if that's true and you want to make, you know, the United States wants to put, you know, a nice little tidy bow on this, they can say, well, we raided this place and uh, you know, shot him and then we buried him at sea. Uh, and, and I know that what the mainstream story is, we buried him at sea so there wouldn't be, you know, a, uh, a holy site for, you know, people that would want to follow him. Uh, would go and, and, and visit. That's one side of it. Or it's also possible that there was no body. I would think it'd be, uh, according to what I was reading online, uh, and again, no expert, but Islam uh, has very specific rules on burying uh, bodies after death within a certain period of time. Burying him at sea would, would do more to inflame is uh, Muslims uh, because it's not a proper burial for a Muslim. And so, you know, in that sense, if we look at the over and under Barack Obama's presidency, where he sort of stepped out of his way ad nauseum time and time again, wouldn't even say radical Islamic terrorism and things like that, uh, that it seemed for the overture of his eight years in the white house, he, steadfastly refused to do anything that would even esoterically be misconstrued by uh, Muslims worldwide. Well, taking a guy that was a well-known figure in, in the Islamic world and burying him against Islamic uh, tradition, I would think would do quite a lot to inflame uh, Muslims. So that's, that part of it seems to not hold up. Uh, you know, it's hard to say because of the lack of evidence, it's going to be hard to make a, a call one way or the other until we get proof that he had died in 2006 in a cave somewhere or in a Turkish hospital or a uh, Pakistani hospital someplace or out in the desert, wherever. Uh, until we get proof of that, it's going to be hard to refute the story. I'll give Barack Obama and his administration credit on this. If, if it is a conspiracy and, you know, they are concealing something, you know, this is about the best way to have done it, uh, that, you know, there is no evidence and there's nothing to follow up on. Uh, who knows? I mean, you know, none of us, let's put it this way, the three of us sitting on here and the people listening, none of us are ever going to know the truth on this. Uh, it just seems to be, awfully coincidental and awfully convenient that it was wrapped up that neat and tidy and, you know, no body to view, no place to go and look, no evidence, no DNA testing done. Uh, just shot him, dumped him in the sea, and that was it. And just happened to be the big selling point on Obama's going, you know, for a second term. You know, that was a yes. big thing. Oh, yeah. and I killed her biggest. Strangely coincidental, don't you think, that that was his big selling point and it almost assured him victory? Well, you know, there, there's, a, there's a term called the October Surprise. And uh, October Surprises traditionally have meant to be something that throws a candidate off kilter. So, uh, you know, a few days or weeks before the election, some huge piece of news pops out and 
you know, it, it destabilizes the candidate. Uh, you know, that that's the traditional meaning of October surprise. It can also be something in my in my vernacular, something that really emboldens a candidate. So, you know, as we're going into the uh, election against uh, Mitt Romney, if you remember in that election uh, leading up to the election day, uh, it was a very tight race, and several polls have Mitt Romney ahead by a point or two. Uh, so tight, but it seemed like it was trending uh, in Romney's direction. Uh, before I say anything more, I'll say this. I've never seen uh, any president historically in, uh, in a reelection bid be reelected with economic news as abysmal as Barack Obama had. The unemployment rate, uh, the, the people living under poverty, uh, food stamp recipients, uh, job creation, all of it was abysmal. And I thought for sure, based on that alone, that he would not win re-election. And then, of course, this uh, 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 convenient, if you're a conspiratorialist, uh, act of you know shooting uh, Osama bin Laden. But the thing that I always get that I love about this is like when Hillary was running. You know, she's talking about when they were in the Situation Room and Barack Obama made the courageous decision to go after. Osama bin Laden. What's courageous about it? This guy, this guy masterminded 9/11 that killed 32, 3,300 Americans and put us at war for the last what 15, 16 years. Uh, what's courageous about it? If, if I said to you, John, we got this guy pinned down. Do you want us to go after him or not? <laughs> it's not you out there that's shooting him. You're not getting on the helicopter and going and doing it. It's a pretty easy decision, I would think, and, and, and for most average Americans, uh, I never understood, like, what was the courageous thing about it? You know, you got, uh, you know, Navy, uh, the, the Navy SEAL Team 6 out there, uh, pretty, you know, pretty uh, competent people out in the field, if, again, if, if what we're being told is true, and we know where this guy is, uh, I, I don't know where the courageous part of it came. That, to me, is more like pushing a button to change the channel on your television, Uh Barack Obama sitting in a situation room. That's I don't know any American, any patriotic American that would sit there and say, "Man, eh, nah, let's not go after him. Let's let him go." Um, huh. seems, to be, seems to me to be a pretty simple uh, decision to make. Now, as far as the 9/11 part of it, which is obviously supposedly all constructed from Obama, I mean from uh, Osama bin Laden. And, you know, and obviously Al-Qaeda and this and that. Obviously, the other end of the spectrum, the conspiracy theory is there's no way that, you know, 19 terrorists with box cutters could have, you know, basically evade the U.S. government. And there's no way that this, you know, dying guy of kidney disease uh, who was hiding in a cave could construct something like this. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously he's a, he's a wealthy guy, but do you, what do you, you know? What are your thoughts on nine eleven? Could it have been a conspiracy theory by the government? Well, I mean, look, I mean, it, anything is possible. I think it's completely possible that nineteen guys, uh, especially with the porous immigration laws that we've always had for the last twenty five, thirty years in this country, uh, would have allowed these guys in and to fly under the radar. Um, you know, I, I don't find that especially troubling 
the, the conspiratorial side that, to the whole 9-11 thing that gets me is the day of the attack, the American military uh, uh, jets that would have responded in and around New York were well out over the Atlantic uh, conducting a uh, an operation, a what do they call it, a, uh, an exercise, a practice uh, for a terrorist attack. I forget the name of the of the uh, operation, but the booklet that was for this operation had a picture of the White House, had a picture of the Pentagon, had a picture of the Capitol, had a picture of the World Trade Centers, and it had Osama bin Laden's picture on it. Um, and you know that's you know possibly a coincidence, but you know. One hell of a coincidence, if you think about it, when you start to you know to boil this thing down. Uh, but when you start to look at, to me, you know, there's I mean, we could talk. This could be a, a you know a five episode topic on its own. But uh, there were I, I've read a lot of things uh, and seen documentaries with metallurgists that had done studies on the debris and dust that was left when the buildings fell. This was like several inches deep uh, all over New York and around that area. And as you can imagine, with that many people living there, there was more than one or two that picked up, you know, samples of this, you know, jarfuls and uh, containers full of this stuff. And uh, these metallurgists had conducted studies on the debris that was left behind. And, and at first, they didn't know what they were looking at, but they kept finding these microscopic, uh, metallic spheres in the debris and thought it was strange that they were finding it in all the samples. Well, again, not being a metallurgist, I've got to take what I'm being told uh, and what I'm reading as being truthful from these people that are experts in that field, that the only thing that could create those metallic spheres would be the use of uh, uh, plastic explosives and that that creates those metallic spheres in the dust and the debris. Uh, now, if that's true, again, if there's anybody out there that's a metallurgist and listening to the show, I would love to get some feedback as to whether or not that's true. Is it not true? If it is true, Mike, the, the immediate question would be, then how in the hell did those metallic spheres get in the debris? Uh, if that's the only way that they can be derived. Um, but there's other parts, too. When you look, there were two buildings that were hit. So if you follow the official version of the story, that the jet fuel burned so hot that it melted the, pin, the, the pins that held each of these floors up, and once it started, once the first one dropped and then the second one, it became just velocity versus mass. And that sounds plausible to me. But then what happened to the other five buildings that fell? Uh you know, if it was just like they were hit by debris and they were destroyed, that's one thing. But like Building 7, which housed uh, the local CIA offices and FBI offices and uh, emergency uh, uh, response uh, offices for the city of New York, uh, that building fell as well and fell the same way that the towers did like an accordion. Uh, 
what caused those buildings to fall? And, you know, it just seems awfully suspicious. And I've never yet seen a complete plausible explanation that you say, okay, well, that makes sense. I can understand that. That sounds reasonable. Uh, if anything, the, the explanations that I've read and that I've heard or seen in documentaries seems to be counterintuitive to what they're telling us. So, uh, you know, again, who knows? It also seems awfully strange how many people have died, uh, you know, within some short period of time after those buildings falling. There were two guys in particular. If anybody remembers these two guys, uh, please post in a Twitter or send something into the uh, the three threat pod uh, because I'd love to see if anybody else remembers this as well as I do. There was a older white gentleman uh, with gray hair and bald, and a middle-aged. Uh, when I say middle-aged, like in his 40s, maybe early 50s, a uh, heavy-set black guy that both worked in Building Seven, and they were both interviewed that night uh, on all the news stations, and they described how they got out of building seven, but they both said very clearly that they heard explosions going off underneath them from lower in the building. Within a matter of a month or two, maybe three, both of those guys were dead. Uh, Now that's just one hell of a coincidence to me. And there were a lot of stories like that of people that were involved uh, in giving their story. Uh, The morning of the, the attacks, I was at the gym in Beaver, Pennsylvania, and, you know, of course, glued like everybody, glued to the television. And locally, our local news stations were covering the plane that went down here in Pennsylvania. And Channel 2, the the CBS affiliate, KDKA here in Pittsburgh, reported the story. uh, A farmer was being interviewed by the local news station. And he said that he clearly saw what looked to be a missile hitting the plane before it went down. Now, I saw that guy. We were all talking about it at the gym. I never saw that guy interviewed again. I never saw that come up anywhere else on anything national or any documentary that I've seen since or books that I've read since. But I remember vividly seeing this guy being interviewed. He was a local farmer in and around the area where the plane went down in Pennsylvania, and he said that he clearly saw what looked to be a missile contrail heading towards the plane before it came down. Um, If if I'm not to believe that, somebody's got to give me a plausible explanation to explain, you know, the other. We had a plane crash in the county here when I was teaching in 1993 in Beaver High School. And one of the kids that I had, one of my students, uh, he came, his father was one of the investigators that worked with U.S. Airways. And he came in the second day. Uh, Now, a good friend of mine was a police officer that had gone to the site and talked about what he saw there. And he talks about it to this day, how just horrifying it was to see these body parts and you know, parts of the plane scattered everywhere. And this plane did a nosedive straight down into the ground uh, as it was on approach to the Pittsburgh International Airport. The the kid whose father uh, 
worked for U.S. Airways, the second day came in and said, uh, Mr. Martin, Mr. Martin, my dad told me they found bomb residue on the plane, on the, on the parts. Now, I never heard confirmation of that. Uh, it, it, it is now known that there was a guy that was on the plane that had gone to Chicago to testify against the mob and was on this plane coming back. But the part relating back to 9-11 is that there were huge pieces of the plane that were clearly visible and debris from the crash that were scattered over a pretty wide area, even though this plane had nosedived into the ground. The, if you read up on the debris that was found in, uh, uh, what's the name of the town? Um, in Pennsylvania, uh, uh, where the plane went down in Pennsylvania, the debris, there was, there were no major parts of the plane. It was, you know, all like tiny little pieces, like this plane had been ground up or something. You know, there were no huge parts of the fuselage or uh, a wheel or an engine. Uh, it just, it was like the plane had disintegrated. Um, those are the things that to me, like when I read them, just jump out as being highly odd and racist raises suspicions uh when you hear that again i you know having the direct correlation back to an earlier plane crash that happened here in pittsburgh you know seven eight years earlier and you know having heard specifically from friends that were on the site and saw the debris and then hearing this from the uh uh the pennsylvania site crash site in, in 9-11. Just something seems a little bit suspicious there. Very, very suspicious. You know, it's funny, like, just the way all these things kind of come up. It's like what we're fed by the government, what we're, what we're fed by the media. You know, it's just you never take it at face value. You never want to really believe it. If there's some evidence, like you always say, those pesky little facts, if they come up, of course, you know, you have to believe it. But when there's, you know, all these mitigating circumstances and this thing happens and this thing happens, it's almost like I can't believe it until I see it. You know, it's, it's so many conspiracy theories out there are like that. But I just, uh, well, I, and, I, just like you, I, I can't believe it. And don't you think that uh, – now, I'll say this as a preface before we go any further. All of these things, there's enough wiggle room – that you can say it's possible, you know, is it possible that the story that we're being fed is true? Well, sans the evidence to the contrary, you have to say it's at least possible, but then common sense pops in and you can like, like for instance, the lack of muzzle flash coming out of Mandalay Bay, big red flag to me. This seems highly suspicious because uh, again, not being a ballistics expert, it seems to me that thousands of rounds are being fired out of these two windows in direct view of the cameras that hundreds of cameras, not thousands that are shooting in that direction. Uh, I don't see one muzzle flash. That's a little, that's more than just a little bit suspicious and begs you to at least begin to dig and inquire for more information. Uh, so, but I think the government, uh, if, 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 you know, we're to pin this all, all this kind of stuff on the government, uh, which is a big if, but, where you know they benefit from that, you know. So if I'm going to come out and tell you guys some bullshit story, uh, and 
as implausible as it sounds, I benefit from the end result of the story. As implausible as it sounds to you guys, when you, if I tell you guys some bullshit excuse that hey we couldn't do episode seventeen tonight because, uh, you know I, my car broke down and I was in an accident I'm in the hospital, and then you find out that you know I wasn't at the hospital that I was doing another podcast with somebody else on another station, and you know, you know I could come back and say what well, was recorded. You know, I didn't do it that night. It was recorded. And you say, well, that's plausible and it's possible. But why didn't you tell us about that beforehand? So it raises a suspicion. And to me, if I'm the government, let's take their side for a second. If I'm the government and I want to put these conspiracy theories to bed, that's when then say, okay, well, here's the evidence. Let's put it out there. Let's explain it through. And not explain it through in a way that that raises more questions, uh, but explain it through in a way, like, for instance, somebody give me an explanation to the metallic spheres in that dust. Uh, from all the stuff that I had read, uh, that can only be caused by C4 plastic explosives that burn at a certain degree and temperature that melts the metal into those tiny spheres. Um that makes sense to me. Give me a, a, a contradictory story or explanation that rules that out and makes that no longer make sense to me, and yet they've never done that. And so that, you know, again, raises suspicions to me. Not every, I'll say this up front, not every conspiracy theory is true, but nor is every conspiracy theory false. So... Uh, again, you've got to follow the facts and the evidence. And when you roll out the possibilities, you have to begin to explore the impossibilities. And, you know, like going back to Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy, if you look at the Kennedy assassination, when those shots are ringing out, uh, if, according to this Bruder film, where's everybody's head turning? Towards the grassy knoll. I don't see, I'm sure there's one or two, but I don't see many heads turning back towards the, Texas Book Depository. So, you know, it just uh, enough information there that causes suspicions. I want to dial back one second to uh, one of the 9-11 conspiracies, but uh, what you just said about if somebody was to come straight out forward and say, you know, this is plain and simple. I actually was, I was saying independently here that had there been more to the story with Vegas, had it been something more of the, you know, radicalized Islam, if that was really a legit story, that basically in a perfect world or in a movie, that the president comes on and says, I don't want to hear any more speculation, I don't want to hear any more of this, this is what happened, this is what we're going to do, and you want gun control, you know, you want this, you want that, well, this is what happened, folks, and, and coming directly from a, a figure like the president, I feel like I, I think it's too much of a movie plot in my head, um, but that was one of the things I thought of. But just to dial back to uh, the 9/11 conspiracy, I believe it was Building Seven that I don't see. I'm not. I don't subscribe to the 9/11 conspiracy just because of how real it impacted my life. But and I just. I guess I choose not to because of that. But the BBC footage with Building Seven in the background while they're reporting it collapsed. 
that's to me that was the only thing that ever I had to question. And if you've yeah. ever seen that footage, that to me is the most uh, that's the head scratcher of all that uh, conspiracy talk from my point of view. Oh, there, there's there's an unlimited amount. We're, I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface with all the the little snippets of information. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Where uh, BBC is reporting that Building Seven has collapsed and it's standing right there behind them. Yeah, um, freaky. Yeah, I mean, it's again. What? Give me a plausible explanation. How? What did Building Three fall and they just got the number wrong? Possible, but come on, pretty unlikely. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're not going to sit there and, especially with something as big as 9/11, you're not going to misname a building uh, or erroneously tag a number to a building if you're not certain of it. Um, you know, there, but again, there are so many things to 9/11, and enough that you know you don't just sit there and say, "Well, I don't trust government, so everything that happens, I think the government's behind it." But when you start to then draw through the information like that one, and I totally forgot about that. You just said it. Uh, and the other thing that John and I are talking about, and you start to add that up, you can't just, just put it all, you know, like a piece of tinfoil, ball it up and throw it in the garbage can and say, I know it doesn't make sense, but you guys are crazy. Um, there, there's an awful lot of, you know, the old saying goes, well, there's smoke, there's fire. There's a shitload of smoke to 9-11 that doesn't quite add up and when it doesn't add up uh you know that that's what lends then to conspiracy theory and then you start to have you know like i said metallurgical experts that come in and say these metallic spheres can only be created a certain way um i saw another documentary that talked about the uh the pins the, the original story if you remember was that the jet fuel burned at such a degree that it melted the pins that held the floors up. And once the first one went, they picked up speed and just acted like an accordion. Well, I saw another documentary that said that the pins that held those floors up were made of titanium and didn't melt until like 2200 or 2400 degrees. Jet fuel burns at a, a lesser degree. So which is it? I mean, if this, if this particular metal doesn't melt until 22 or 2400 degrees, and this uh, 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 substance that you give me uh, burns at a lesser degree, that obviously cannot be the reason that those pins melted, if that's true. You know, again, all this information, you, you have to say there's this big asterisk if it's true. Um, you know, when I watch a documentary that says, you know, Dr. John Blow here is a, is a metallurgical expert, I have some semblance of belief that that guy must be an expert in that field uh, or that immediately the government come out and say, Dr. John blows an idiot. He's, he's an expert in, in water or something else. Uh, you know, and I've, I've not seen that kind of reputation from the, uh, from the government. So again, when these questions get brought up and, 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 and posed and you begin to dig into them, until you see uh, uh, conflicting information that undermines it or, or refutes it, you can't just wash it away or bowl it up and throw it away. You have to at least consider it and ponder it. So many different conspiracy theories out there. Um, I know there's one that uh, I, I, I won't delve into too deep because 
Chad, I know, agrees with me. It, it could literally be an entire episode dedicated to uh, the death, quote unquote, the death of Adolf Hitler and what really happened. So I want to go into a few um, a few wrestling ones before uh, you know before kind of we conclude or, or go any further. I have to mention a few wrestling ones. Obviously, the Montreal Screwjob has been covered to death. I mean, there's so many. Uh, different stories about that were coming up on the 20 year anniversary. So many different stories work, shoot or whatever. I was just curious uh, of one. And, and I don't know if, if you agree or disagree and it's Vince Russo, I don't know, or, or if you've even heard of this not, uh, conspiracy theory, there was a conspiracy theory that Vince Russo was sent by a Vince McMahon himself to WCW to kill it. Do you, have you ever heard that conspiracy theory? Do you believe that conspiracy theory? What are your thoughts? I did hear it. Um, again, it's one of those things that, you know, when you, when you look at events from now back to then, you know, it certainly raises questions, uh, seems suspicious. But to me, the, the thing that sort of works against that is that Eric Bischoff was brought back into the fray at the time that, that Vince Russo was there running it. And uh, I think that Vince Russo uh, did begin to do some things that started pushing WCW towards a different path, like the, the millionaires versus the, uh, uh, the new blood, uh, you know, the push Chris Benoit's push um, to the title. Uh you know, the revolution, things like that. It, you know, those things were things that I believe would have worked if given opportunity, um, but they weren't uh, because there was this push and pull between Eric and, and Vince. Uh, but that said, you know, you know, putting the belt on David Arquette, you know, also, you know, raises questions. Uh, I, I think that in hindsight, again, from where we sit today, looking back, that Vince was able to buy the company for mere pennies uh, or tenths of pennies on on the dollar as to what that uh, library and the company was actually worth at that time. Uh, to me, that, that spells out more that uh, there was just a competition and uh, – you know, Vince had left. I mean, they were paying Vince an awful lot of money, and and uh, what was his? Uh, I always forget. Jeez, uh, I'm so bad with names anymore. Vince and uh, his number two. Um, God, Ed. Ed Ferrara. Yeah, jeez, that's where I'm getting seen out with names. Uh, you know yeah. that they they were both making an awful lot of money. But again, if you look at those initial moves that Vince Russo made when he came in. Uh, the putting together of me and Chris and Dean and Perry Saturn in the revolution and some of those angles that we did up, you know, uh, at the very launch of the revolution. Uh, as somebody who had spent his latter part of his career, successful part of his career as a heel, the revolution was getting over. It was getting the heat that was needed needed to, to work. And then they put the belt on Chris. Uh, Vince put the belt on Chris uh, that to me sort of works against the idea that it was sent there to kill the company. Um, but you know, again, there's enough countering points with the David Arquette thing and, and, 
the rest of it to to at least uh, raise a question. Now with Russo, obviously, you know, he he obviously denies it and says you know he was there to to try to build up WCW. He you know he claims he helped them and different things like that. But that's just one of those funny conspiracy theories that's out there. Not necessarily that we believe it, but it's just one of those funny things that that's out there. That's like wow, that's that's pretty crazy that people think that. But people, if you remember um, back in the eighties and nineties. They used to think that there was two ultimate warriors. Do you remember that kind of a conspiracy theory? I, I do, and I, 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 you know, I've done a quick brief review on that today online. But uh, on, in addition to what I had read online, I think where that came up was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, through the cobwebs of time, uh, Jim Helwig was on the road. Uh, I was on the road at the time with them, and he just disappeared and it coincided with the federal government classifying steroids as a schedule one or a schedule two drug, whatever the the schedules of the, uh, of the DEA are and that anybody caught with them without a prescription, uh, basically the, the RICO laws, the federal racketeering laws kicked in and you would forfeit, you know, let's say, Shane Douglas owns an office building that he has his office in and rents out the rest and gets caught with steroids, then they, the federal government can come in and confiscate the building, uh, arrest you. Uh, and Jim Helwig just disappeared off the road one day. He just didn't show up at the show that night. Nobody knew where he was and nobody could him. And it was several months before I saw Jim come back on the road. And when he did, he was wearing a singlet he was still in great shape, don't get me wrong, but he was nowhere near as big as he had been, and he had a singlet that had, like, the ab muscles painted onto it, and uh, he did look different, but it was still Jim Helwig. I, I, I can verify that, and I think that's what lent a lot to there being two ultimate warriors, uh, that he was, you know, that when he came back, he was much smaller. My guess is that the belief at the time was that he went back and, you know, got rid of all the steroids that he had and stopped taking them and came back. And when he did, he was much lighter, maybe 40, 50 pounds lighter, uh, and was wearing that singlet with the painted on muscles. I think that's where that, that the double ultimate warrior thing began. So many different, like, recollections of history by different fans saying, like, oh, I could have sworn uh, – you know, as a different guy because of his haircut at WrestleMania 8. People were saying that he looked completely different. There's so yeah. many different stories. Um, there was an incident, or I guess it was a, some sort of a show, supposedly Kerry Von Erich was wearing the paint because he looked like the warrior. So people kind of <laughs> always always had their, uh, their theories and stuff. Have you ever uh, seen anyone else? in the warrior paint, like a Carrie Von Eric or anything, or is that all? No, Carrie, Carrie and I, in fact, when, when Carrie was there until the time that he disappeared and ended up dying shortly after, uh, Carrie and I traveled together and I can honestly tell you, I never saw Carrie in the paint. I never saw anybody else in the paint other than Jim Helwig. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I can honestly say that, you know, I, I wasn't with Kerry Von Erich every split second that he was there, but I was with him a good bit. 
and I'm sure he would have said something if so. I never saw anybody other than Jim Elwig in the Ultimate Warrior uh, paint. I got to ask this conspiracy theory because it's out there. I've heard many wrestlers talk about it, whether it be the Road Warriors, whether it be Vader, you know, whether it be a myriad of, of guys talking about it, but Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels being gay lovers. There's been so many stories. <laughs> it, it's yeah. been said by so many people. What are you, What's your take on that kind of big conspiracy theory on why Michaels was pushed, why the commentary towards Michaels was always so favorable? Even, uh, even Bret Hart kind of was saying, I don't know what was going on between these guys. <laughs> well, I... I don't know what was going on between the guys, if there was anything going on between them. I, if so, they certainly didn't invite me in uh, because you know, the franchise doesn't necessarily go that way. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like you guys and, and like the fans and like the other wrestlers, uh, I had heard rumors, and there were always rumors that were echoing around the dressing room. Um, you know, I'd, I had heard, you know, different versions of stories from people, uh that, you know, you, knowing the people know that there's, I don't know why they would lie, um, but I never personally saw any indication of any kind of connection uh, in a sexual way between Vince Man and, and, and Shawn Michaels. Uh, you know, it's, uh, so anything we do, and I want to be very careful because I don't want to slander or libel anybody, but, uh you know, to me, you know, seeing, uh, you know, when you hear something, you know, you start to look and watch and, and pay attention. And I never saw any kind of uh, what I would say non-professional behavior between Vince and Sean at the buildings. Uh, but keep in mind that, you know, the WWE or WWF then uh, had a system where, you know, if you were in those upper echelon contracts, the WWF would traditionally have a, a hall, you know, a floor of rooms that were set aside for the top guys. They typically had to have a key card to get to those floors. Well, Shane Douglas at that time, or Dean Douglas, didn't have access to those floors. Um, you know, but, you know, it's... Uh, you know, you see, you know, the possibilities of things. Yes, there's anything is possible. Uh, but I never saw anything that would lead me to believe on the face of it. Uh, the interactions between them at the buildings uh, would suggest that sort of thing. Uh, Shawn Michaels, me and Marty Jannetty and Dustin Rhodes spent an ample amount of time together. Uh, in 1990, uh, when I was there the first time in 1990, for about a year and a half, uh, where one of us were, all four of us were. We called ourselves the Four Amigos. And uh, I never saw anything in Sean at that time that would suggest anything other than what the rest of us were doing, you know, looking for, you know, <laughs> young, pretty rats and uh, uh, hanging out. I, I never saw anything like that, and I never saw any kind of interactions at the building that would lead to believe otherwise. But, you know, that said, if I were, if I were going to do something like that, which I wouldn't, of course, uh, 
I would be very careful to not exhibit those behaviors around the boys in the dressing room. I've heard the same room as everybody else has. Uh, I've never seen personally any evidence to support it other than the rumors of the stories that you hear. But with Shawn Michaels and, and Bret Hart with the, the screw job, uh, the, I've never spoken to Bret about this. I've never spoken to Shawn, obviously, about it, because I haven't spoken to Shawn since about 1996. Um, but there was one thing that happened at the end of that uh, that whole thing that convinced me that it was one of two things. It was either Sean being absolutely brilliant, which I don't believe, or it was a shoot. <laughs> and uh, it was that, if you remember, at the split second, the three count comes. What's the first thing that Sean does? Gets out of the ring, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he, he grabs the belt. He just bolts out of there. He uh, bolted immediately. He, right, and he kind of plays it. Right before he walks through the entrance, he kind of does the, you know, the, the character, you know, throw his arms up in the air and jump and go through the tunnel. But I always thought that that could have maybe been, uh, you know, maybe that wasn't as in character as we thought. Well, if it were a shoot, uh, which seems to be the preponderance of evidence uh, that I've ever heard, uh, the first thing on a screw job like that, if you're going to screw someone like Brett, uh, who's pretty competent, and we you know we've all heard the the uh, Stu Hart uh, training sessions. Um, is that Brett's what we would have called a hooker? You know, in the, somebody could grab you, and you know, pretty much you know knows how to to handle himself. Sean, on the other hand, doesn't. I, I've never seen any evidence that Sean was a tough guy or a guy that was willing to stand up for himself. Um, or defend himself or uh, be brash outside of uh, uh, a room that didn't have a television camera in it. Uh, so when I saw Sean bolt out of the ring, the first time I saw that back in however many, 20 years ago it was, uh, and he scoots out of the ring immediately, if it were a shoot, and this was a legitimate screw job to Brett, uh, that's what I would have done, got the hell out of Dodge because if Brett would have gotten his hands on it. And then if you remember Brett's response, is he looks around sort of shocked for a second and looks, where's Sean? And, uh, of course, Sean's gone at that point. Like I said, if it was a work, it was a brilliant, flawlessly executed work. Uh, but I don't believe that that's what it was. I think it was simply Vince's way of conveniently getting what he needed to get the company where he needed to go. And knowing Vince's personality, uh, the way he treats and, and disrespects people when he feels it's necessary, uh, I would think that Vince, the Vince man that I know, would very easily say, well, fuck Bret Hart. This is what I need, and this is what I'm going to get, and I don't care how, what I have to do to get it. Uh, that's completely consistent with the Vince man that I know, as opposed to them fostering some kind of an inside work. Very, very interesting to get your take on that. And I got to ask you, who tells you that that happened? Because I don't think Shane Douglas in 97 is uh, ponying up to the pay-per-view table to watch the Survivor Series. Who tells you what <laughs> happened and who gets you in front of that incident uh, to, to kind of take your first viewing at it? Well, I, I you're right. I didn't watch it live, uh, but my phone within 
minutes of it happening was ringing. And the first call that I remember getting was from Damian Farron, who had been my driver in ECW. And we later became very close friends, probably my best friend in the world uh, before he passed away. And he was the head of ECW merchandising. He used to watch all the pay-per-views because he was a big fan. And he called me and said, did you hear what happened? And of course I hadn't. And he told me, and then at that point I went back to the computer and was able to pull it up and, and look at it. I was looking at the, uh, uh, the feedback from the fans. I don't recall if I saw the footage that night and it was that quick, but uh, I remember like the feedback immediately. It was like a pretty big topic online and a uh, pretty big uh, thing that it, the boys were talking back and forth, you know, getting all the phone calls and stuff. But then when I finally did see the footage, that was the first thing that jumped out at me was that Sean grabs the belt and gets the hell out of Dodge. And then Brett turns around and is like almost immediately looking for Sean. And Sean, of course, is gone. Now, you know, to me, I'm a firm believer in uh, people's personalities being consistent. And the Sean Michaels that I know, uh, who's not a rough-and-tumble guy, is a good way to put it, uh, mm-hmm. would not want to confront Brett and would would do exactly what he did, is get it and get the hell out of there. My guess is if, if it was a work, that Sean must have been telling Vince beforehand, whatever we have to do, but you got to help me cover my ass. And uh, I've, it's rare, if ever, I've ever seen anything flawlessly executed in this business. If that was a work, then it was one of the best, most flawlessly executed works I've ever seen in the business. Because, again, just the way uh, Hebner reacts, the way Sean scoots, the way Brett turns and looks and then looks for Sean, uh, boy, if that, if that was a work, it was an incredibly well-done work. It altered so much. I mean, it literally changed the landscape of business for, for Vince. He became the on-air Mr. McMahon character. He left the broadcast booth. Brett obviously goes to WCW. Uh, Rick Rude, who we talked about on the last show, he bolts from WWF and famously goes to WCW. And then the Bulldog and the Anvil, they all joined Brett. So there literally was moving parts up the yin-yang. So for that to be an inside job, I mean, that's oh, we're talking lawyers and contracts. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. red tape. And then the infamous phone call that uh, I believe Vince Russo claims to have been a part of as well, where – uh, they were trying to get Owen out of his contract as well, but Vince, you know, vehemently uh, told Brett, "There's no way I'm letting Owen Hart go." And uh, you know, obviously, we all know, unfortunately, what happened to Owen Hart. You know, only a year and a half later, um, which you know, kind of uh, just kind of convert me into my next conspiracy theory, uh, just in a in certain topic realm, is that uh, the quote, "The wrestler, you know, dead." So, so-and-so dead uh, before, you know, the early 2000s, 90s, when we got uh, the internet, it was all speculation because if you didn't see somebody on your TV, you didn't know what happened to them. And I think the most famous one is somebody who we've talked about with you, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who you classically portrayed his distant, distant relative <laughs> many moons ago. But in the late 80s, Paul Orndorff had rumored to have been passed away uh, 
basically because he wasn't on television anymore. So is that yeah. is, do you do you recall that rumor of Mr. Wonderful passing away because like I said, he wasn't on TV, so therefore we didn't know he was still alive. Yeah, I, I do remember the, uh, the when the rumor circulated, and uh, I, I do believe that at the time, though, it was very quickly in, on the inner circles, put down very quickly. Um, but it, it circulated for some time. Uh, in fact, I used to get uh, what you're referring to with the uh, the distant distant uh, relative was that. Uh, had worked for uh, Crybaby Cannon in Windsor, Ontario, when I was just months in the business. And he'd ask me for uh, what, you know, I'd never met him before. And he said, what's your name? And I said, it's Troy Martin. And he said, ah, it's a shit name. <laughs> and he said, uh, what do you use when you go to the ring? And I, I had never used the ring name at that point. I just was working local shows. He said, well, go to the ring. I'll come up with something for you. And I go to the ring and I wrestled the Mandingo Warrior that night. And he said, uh, the announcer comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, making this pro wrestling debut tonight, the nephew of the great Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Troy Orndorff. And uh, so getting back to the Paul Orndorff death uh, uh, rumor, uh, for months afterwards, I had fans come up to me and saying, uh, hey, uh, I'm really sorry about your Uncle Paul. And I do have a legitimate Uncle Paul, Paul uh, Shedding. So, you know, for me it was, or Paul Dietz, I mean, uh, so it's, uh, you know, to me when I would hear, Hey, I'm you know, really sorry about your uncle Paul for a split second, like with a brain fart, not thinking you'd say like, well, how do you know my uncle Paul? And then, Oh, okay. Well, you're talking about Paul Orndorff. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I do vividly remember the angle or not the angle, but the, uh, the rumor that Paul Orndorff had passed away. And thankfully it was not a, a, a truthful one because, you know, Paul was one of those guys that had a lot of, uh, people that, it was a very strong personality, and so uh, there was you know, people in the there was I mean, people always say about you know leftover spaghetti. You know, it, it, it's either great or it's bad. There's no in between. Well, there was no in between with Paul Orndorff. People either really liked and respected Paul, or they didn't like Paul. And I was luckily one of the guys that got along great with Paul, and so always had a good relationship with him. Always looked up to him. Uh, but I remember hearing uh, you know the people in the dressing room that would you know, talk about him behind his back, always behind his back. Uh, I never saw anybody overtly go to Paul and uh, say their piece with him. You know, Paul was a pretty rough and tumble dude, straightforward guy. You know, he wasn't like a, a jerk or a jackass, a uh, straightforward guy. But, you know, if you crossed him, he would certainly confront you about it. And, uh, you know, I, I because of having played, you know, at some small point in my career, his nephew, uh, I, you know, sort of saw a different side of that. Uh, once I, I met Paul after, you know, a year or two later and, uh, you know, went up to him and explained to him, you know, hey, I didn't want him thinking I was like trying to steal his name or something and having heat with Paul. And he laughed about it. But, you know, I, I do remember the, uh, the rumor about that he had died and, I think it was also part of the fact that he was, at the time, I believe, or, or just coming off the angle with, with Hogan. And this is when WrestleMania and the Saturday Night Main event, and everything was really hot. And, and uh, Orndorff with Bobby Heenan, of course, was a really hot commodity in the business. So when suddenly he wasn't around uh, for that short period, there was the rumors that he had died or, or whatever. And 
I'm, I'd be curious to find out where that rumor started. Oh gosh, I mean that's digging back into the days of the uh, the, the the dirt sheets and the newsletters. So I'm sure it was just a a tip by some anonymous, uh, you know, nameless person who probably sent it to somebody who published it. But I, I mean, even then, I, I can't see a guy like Meltzer running with something that's not confirmed, uh, right? Especially of that magnitude. But yeah, Orndorff, uh, supposedly the backup for Andre if Andre wasn't going to. Uh, do business with Hulk at WrestleMania three and uh, not use, but also, you know, nursing his injuries, nursing the, uh, the atrophy in the arm and yeah. uh, leaving the WWF at the end of 87. And then basically doesn't resurface until Herb Abrams UWF, which is, I believe 1989 into 1990. Uh, so, you know, if you left TV for that time in the late eighties, you know, you were gone. <laughs> there was, yeah. So I could see how that got started. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, and at that point, too, that was the, the uh, you know, beginning, like you said, with the dirt sheets and things where everybody was looking for an explanation. The fans back then were nowhere near as, quote, unquote, smart as they are today because of the inside, you know, being exposed constantly to the business. Uh, but, you know, there was enough information out there that would tweak uh, people's uh, interest, you know, that, well, you know, Paul Orndorff hasn't been seen for X amount of time, and, you know, uh, people begin to fill in the blanks. You know, that, that, that'd be my guess, that, you know, the fans just started looking at him and thinking, well, he's not, nobody's seen him, and, you know, uh, you know, because he's not being seen as big of a name as he was, something must have happened. That's probably you're probably right as to what happened. People just fill in the blanks. Now it's that time again. It is time to hit the AFA. It is time for ask franchise anything. And this question almost kind of leads into another question, which could be a great wrestling conspiracy theory. But here. Hey, Shane, I love the podcast and would be honored if you'd answer my question on air. What was the back, what was going on backstage during the mass transit incident? Thank you, Jackie T. Uh, great question. Uh, the, the, I was privy to pretty much most of that because I was sitting at a table, a little card table in the back of the uh, Wonderland, uh, which was a Greyhound racetrack park that we ran in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, right out right in the outskirts of Boston. And uh, I was sitting there talking with Paul and Taz was sitting there. Me, Taz, and Paul were sitting there talking. And uh, Mass Transit came in with one of the midgets. I forget which, which midget it was, but he came in and the midget said to Paul, hey, I've got this kid. You know, if you can get him on the show, I'd really appreciate it, that kind of thing. And Paul started asking Taz had left by this point, and the midget and mass transit sat down, and Paul started asking mass transit questions. How old are you? He said he was uh, uh, 18 or 19. Uh, It was of legal age, whichever it was, either 18 or 19. Uh, He'd asked him if he'd been trained. He said yes, he'd been trained by Killer Kowalski for two years. Um, He asked him if he had any aversion to wrestling New Jack that he had one opening on the card and 
the kid said that he had no problem with that. Paul asked him if he'd ever gigged, and he said that he had, uh, that he had no problem doing it, that he wasn't afraid to do it, that he had done it. And that was it. And, you know, then some short period later, you know, Chris and I and uh, uh, Bam Bam, we used to dress. uh, It was a back hallway behind, uh, like, I guess during regular operating hours, there was a concession stand there, and then there were some bathrooms and some hallways. Me and Chris and Bam Bam always dressed down at the end of the hall in one of the bathrooms, I think it was the ladies' room, if I'm not mistaken. You know, of course, closed off to the public at that time. And Tammy and Francine, of course, would dress in there with us. And, you know, we were back in there, and I remember this, like, a, like a whole lot of fracas going on. And there was a lot of running around and stuff. And I came down to see what was going on. I didn't know if there was a fight going on in the building or what. And when I got down close to the uh, gorilla position, the entrance, uh, I saw the kid's dad like just panicking, you know, this is my fucking son, what the fuck is going on, that kind of just going crazy, and I looked out at ringside, and uh, security was out there, Uh, our, uh, the EMTs that we had working with us there locally were out there, Uh, all I saw was they had a towel on the kid, and my first thought was, he must have, like, broken an ankle or broken a wrist or something. And then, you know, as the two seconds went by, I could see they were holding the towel on his head. And now the towel, you know, a full-size towel is now, you know, crimson red. You know, so like within a matter of 30 seconds, this white towel is now dripping wet red with blood. And, uh, you know, quickly you can surmise what's going on and what's happening. And they got the kid onto a stretcher and, brought him back and I remember the kid coming back and he was scared but he was more uh he kept asking uh, did I do okay did I do okay you know that he was you know uh I think more interested in hearing that you know that he had done well and uh but the amount of blood I remember like you know look I walked out the ringside and this was all going on and there was just a, it looked like somebody had been murdered in the ring. There was a huge puddle of blood. And like I said, the towel was dripping blood, and there was a trail of blood where they brought him back on the gurney and through. Uh, you know, the kid was losing a substantial amount of blood. And, uh, you know, we all know the story as to what happened, and it just always seemed, uh, you know, to bring this conversation full circle with what we talked about Dominic and, you know, the professionalism uh, that was, was trained into us, you know, to, where I come from in the business, you don't take advantage of, of somebody, whether they've been trained or not, whether they're 25 years old or 15 years old, you just don't do something like that for somebody. And, uh, you know, of course, a couple of years later, the kid then dies and there's all sorts of, you know, another conspiracy theory is that, you know, the kid dies a couple of years later and, you know, you start to hear the rumor that it, had, it was, you know, relating to this kid being in a, a depression based off of what happened that night. Uh, I've never seen a death certificate, but the kid wasn't exactly spelt. It wasn't like he was in the best of shape. Uh, I, no, I don't want to sound trite or that, like I'm suggesting that he deserved it or, you know, whatever happened, happened. Uh, 
But, you know, I think this is one of those places where, like, with a conspiracy theory, you could look and say, well, uh, based off of what I personally know, what I heard the kids saying to Paul, answering Paul's questions beforehand, he had certainly been misleading to Paul on his age, on his training, uh, on the fact that he had gigged before, and, you know, things happened. And, and that's sometimes, like I said earlier with the conspiracy theories, sometimes things do just happen, and, there's, and there is no full explanation. Um, and, and to me, that was one of those things that, that happened based off of the pieces of information that I had in the building. And, and I had, like I said, a front row seat, no pun intended, to, you know, what this kid had parlayed to Paul as far as information. And then this thing happening a short time later, you know, just uh, some, you know, he got called on his lies, you know, because, you know, it's pretty hard at that point then to try to lie, especially if you're going to file a lawsuit. Now it's going to come out that you're actually not 18, that you've not been trained, et cetera, et cetera. And then further adding to a little bit of the conspiracy was, you know, people threw it out there was like, did this kid do that on purpose? Did he try to, not only for like a lawsuit purpose, but was he sent there by somebody? Because it almost led to barely legal getting canceled. And, you know, obviously Heyman ended up negotiating later and obviously barely legal ended up happening. But there was also like crazy maybe conspiracy theory that this kid did that on purpose somehow sent there to basically get ECW off pay-per-view. Have you ever heard uh, that conspiracy theory at all? I I had heard that, uh, not necessarily the way you, you laid it out, and I'll explain why I never bought it. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the kid was there. It wasn't like he came there and, uh, you know, if you're going to try to set somebody up to, to get somebody to lose their license or whatever, uh, like in that sense of the way you set it up uh, to send a kid there to do something like that. Uh, and then, you know, say you're going to work with new Jack and new Jack's going to blade you. Um, to me, that just screams out confirming what the official version of the story is, is that this kid was in way above his head, uh, whether by, uh, attempted to be misleading with the information or just being stupid and being misleading, uh, allowed himself to be put into a situation that didn't end up good for him. And anybody that's been around the business would know, you know, at any point prior to that happening, that this isn't going to turn out good. You know, if you're going to say to me, uh, here's a 16, 17-year-old kid who's never been trained, He's going to go to the ring with New Jack and let New Jack gig him. Uh, screams out to validate the young and dumb kid version of the story. Uh, greener than goose shit is the same. We chain the business as opposed to some plant that was in there trying to uh, surreptitiously undermine ECW. I think it's the, uh, the facts as I know them and saw them at the building that night speaks out far more to young and dumb, not, uh, not, uh, contriving and, uh, and espousing an agenda. 
young and dumb and uh way to just pull a random uh you know new england area trainer like killer kowalski out and and nobody questioned that maybe killer kowalski would take uh the money of a guy that looked like uh mass transit you know it doesn't really fit the mold of a killer kowalski trading yeah well and the thing is is uh killer walter was not at the show that day uh, typically, Walter was at the ECW shows, and in large part because a lot of his guys, like Cronus and, and Saturn, were on the shows. Um, and Walter would typically come before the show and be out there in the ring working out with the guys. And he, Walter was a great, good guy, just uh, very uh, skilled in the ring, but also just a great guy. Uh, very easy to get along with and helpful, uh, easy to talk to. Uh, but he was not there that night. And, you know, that, to me, would be, you know, either this kid was very lucky in the way that he laid out his version of the story, his work, saying that he was trained by Killer and uh, he was uh, 18 or 19 years old and that he did before. Uh, because on a show-to-show basis, I would say, 90% of the time, 9 out of 10 times, Killer Kowalski would have been in the building, and he was not that night. So, uh, either this kid got damn lucky in his story, or my guess is in hindsight, uh, looking back, didn't realize that Killer Kowalski was there almost all the time. And he just got damn lucky that, you know, he, he threw that name out there and not knowing if, if Walter was there or not. Uh, and, and it just turned out to be that Walter was not there that night. And Killer Kowalski, yeah, man, uh, he managed to train uh, Saturn, Cronus, China, and a guy named Terra Ryzen, who used to perform in WCW. And I don't know whatever uh, happened to Terra Ryzen afterwards. He just kind of <laughs> fell off the map. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So as we kind of wrap this baby up, I mean, this was a cool little uh, departure here to tackle some conspiracy theories, tackle some uh, heated issues that occurred over the weekend in uh, in Michigan, and kind of cross over a couple different borders here. I think it was a lot of fun. Definitely uh, love to do something like this again. Uh, But as we move forward here to uh, the next couple episodes, there'll be some Minor changes happening, and I apologize if my uh, audio sounds a little different. My uh, my device actually died uh, while we were talking. I had to switch to another device uh, mid-recording. So uh, wow. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, that's magic right there. So I apologize for any uh, audio degrading, but uh, we'll be we'll be improving a lot of audio. We'll be coming with some firepower, uh, and there's going to be some cool changes coming uh, very, very soon. And, uh, Shane, as always, I just uh, can't thank you enough for uh, giving everything that you give, and, John, for uh, setting up some great conspiracy theories. You two uh, nutjobs can uh, sleep peacefully <laughs> tonight that you guys uh, tackled a lot of business. Those damn government guys, you can't trust them for as far as you can throw them. You can trust them about as much as you can trust Vince McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, Minnie Mac, if you are, if you are listening, uh, it was they, it was John and Shane who were saying all that stuff. So just, uh, just in case the guys with the white coats are coming. <laughs> 
Well, as we wrap it up here, and we'll move forward to the next episode, a possible uh, New Horizon for us. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun, and Shane, we like to end it with some plugs, but I'm just going to say you can find us, the two-man power trip, on iTunes. You can find us on Podomatic.com. You can find us on TuneIn Radio. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, hit us up on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip, and definitely hit up Shane on Twitter at the Franchise SD, and send us some Ask Franchise Anything questions to the Triple Threat Pod at Gmail dot com. Again, the Triple Threat Pod at Gmail dot com. Shane, I'm not a hundred percent sure when we're going to post it, but just for the hell of it, I know you're coming back my way down here to Virginia again. This coming weekend. Yeah. So, where are you going to be in this wonderful bird state of Virginia? <laughs> well, this coming Saturday, I'm excited to be coming down. There's a, a big uh, sports memorabilia show going to be in <clears throat> Chantilly, Virginia, uh, during Saturday late morning, early afternoon. Uh, a ton uh, of sports uh, figures from football and hockey, uh, baseball, professional wrestling. Uh, some actors from some pretty iconic movies like Sandlot, uh, who my son is, both my sons were huge fans of Sandlot. So I'm going to be uh, going and uh, tracking down the actor from Sandlot at, at the uh, uh, memorabilia convention this coming Saturday in Chantilly. And then Saturday night in Waynesboro, Virginia, great big event going on there. A ton of names of people going to be there, and uh, namely uh, the Rock and Roll Express, who I'm going to be there looking for uh, Ricky Morton because we've got a little score to settle on something. Uh, but that's to raise money for the uh, Children's Hospital. It's uh, awesome uh, uh, wrestling entertainment, awe, and a great cause for Children's Hospital. So Saturday is looking to be a big, momentous day to get out there and uh, meet a lot of my sports heroes like Joe Montana and, and uh, some others uh, there at the uh, Chantilly uh, autograph signing session. And then that night in uh, uh, Waynesboro, Virginia, to raise money for a children's hospital. So all around Saturday looks to be a great day. It's going to be awesome. And it's a huge show. It happens a couple times a year. And uh, I hope you have a great time. And we will be seeing you the following weekend in New Jersey doing some huge triple threat podcast business and we'll talk about that on the next episode uh going to be another fun day up at legends of the ring and that's coming next weekend so we'll get into that and we will talk to y'all then so if you've got any other questions send them in that mass transit question uh that was a great one came in right after we recorded last week uh so timing is everything as we always say so shane before we wrap it up please send us with some parting words and get us on the road to another great episode of the Triple Threat Podcast. 17 great episodes down tonight, next week, number 18. You want to make damn sure you're tuned in because if you listen to 17, you'll know that going into 18, there's something big, big, big coming, something that everybody's been asking for, and all the news will be right here. So tune in or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.